something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. Well, it's the first proper TGP Nominal of the year. You know what this means, I've got to bring up this fader and bring in Mr. Burger. How you doing, sir? We're sorry, your call cannot be completed as dialed. <laughs> Hi. How you doing? Ah. I'm doing. <laughs> so, how was your um, your Christmas, your holiday? It was good. You know, it's mostly for the kids, but I did get some very cool things. One of which you will probably be envious of. <laughs> well, you obviously know that Brian May is big on uh, 3D photos and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. And he published two books recently that are part of his London Stereoscopic Company. Is that it? Yep. And I happened to get both of them. Wow. So, I got the one with... Uh, Queen in 3D, and the one about the mission to the moon in 3D, which is very cool. I can imagine. So is it all like pictures of the Apollo era stuff? Yeah, it's all Apollo era stuff, uh, because a lot of those photos actually were taken stereoscopically. I didn't know that. So it's not just the photos. He talks about getting there and and the equipment and so forth, and it shows some of the cameras that were used to take some of the photos and and things like that. And yeah, so he's got one of those plastic... What were they called, those those back in Victorian times? Stereoscopes? I think they were called stereoscopes, yeah. Well, it, it's got the equivalent of that. It's just the lenses, so you have to put the lenses to your face, and then you have to bring the book the same distance as you would a stereoscope. Mm-hmm. Or you could also take the cheat way out and just uh, do the relaxed eye method. Oh, uh, And right, you, yeah. you could see all the, all the photos and so forth that were done in 3D. It, it's really cool. And the ones for Queen, he said that he had just hundreds and hundreds of photos in a drawer many of which have never seen the light of day even in 2D because, like anything else, you take your pictures and they end up in a drawer. Mm -hmm. But he's had a stereoscopic 3D camera since the 70s, and that's what he took a whole bunch of pictures with when he was with the group. So, I mean, the book obviously talks about Queen, the history of them and so forth, but he's got a whole bunch of behind-the-scenes photos and concert photos all taken with his stereo 3D camera. I mean, I love looking at that stuff anyway. Anything that's behind mm-hmm. the scenes. This is yeah. why I like the extras on on uh, DVD and Blu-ray and stuff, because I just love looking behind the scenes at stuff. So when you get some of these pictures that come out from yesteryear, it's so interesting just to see how things have changed. The 3D definitely does help. It, it does add depth to it, whereas it just looks flat otherwise. Well, he was one of the first ones to release a stereo image of uh, Bennu. Mm -hmm. And when you look at it, it just looks like an asteroid. Okay, it looks like a big rock. But then when you view it in 3D, you see it's actually more like a diamond shape. Yeah. And the one point was sticking right out at you. We kind of mentioned that on the extra episode that, you know, when we were kids, when we used to think about things that were floating around in space, everything was spherical. Mm -hmm. But now, obviously, from what we've been discovering over the last couple of years or so, since 2014, 15, things are not the shape we thought they should be. (laughs) No... When, you know, when you've got a comet that looks like a duck, you've, you know, you've now got a, a Kuiper Belt object that looks like a snowman. You've got a, an alien uh, <laughs> asteroid that came floating past oh, us that looked God. like a cigar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's cool. 
as you say, with the stereoscopic stuff, it can only change your outlook on how you mm-hmm. see things. Now, uh, for me, um, I didn't get a great deal to unwrap, to be honest with you. I got more cash than I did anything else, mainly because most people don't know what to get me. Nothing wrong with that. What I did get, which I kind of like, is um, because I, I like my coffee, but I can only have decaf for medical reasons and um, they don't do all the fancy flavours in decaf and people cottoned onto the idea that I was a bit grumpy about I couldn't get all the flavours and everything so I got quite a lot of coffee syrup <laughs> in loads of flavours yeah nothing wrong with that uh, which I kind of liked it was, cool. uh, but there's a couple of things I did get with uh, with some of the cash uh, a little bit of equipment for the, for the podcast there's a, a shop in the UK called The Works and the works do a lot of cheap books and stationary stuff and things like that. And I was just looking around in the shop and I've been after the, you know, the DK visual dictionaries and things, mm-hmm. uh, the Star Wars ones and whatnot. Um, <laughs> I was looking, I've been looking for a while for a decent price for the solo visual dictionary because the retail price over is it's 17 uh 16.99 is the retail price for it which i think is a bit steep to be honest with you uh the works had it in there for four pounds nice (laughs) so i went take my money heck yeah and i got a dvd box set of uh carry-on movies have you heard of those no it's a comedy series people might say it's not very pc they they go from from the 1950s right up to the early 80s and they did actually make another one in 1992 and there's 30 of these movies it's typically British comedy not exactly Monty Python it's more your slapstick stuff Mm-hmm. Um, it does show its age a little bit. That's what I mean by it's not very PC. Well, that's to be expected. There's historical moments in British history. So you've got Carry On Henry, which is about Henry VIII. You've got one about the French Revolution called Carry On Don't Lose Your Head. And then you've got one about Julius Caesar and Cleopatra called Carry On Cleo. And there's some fantastic lines in there where Julius Caesar rushes into the room going... <laughs> that kind of thing and uh, (laughs) some of them are a bit close to the mark there's one where this very posh guy goes into a hotel and uh, he goes up to the hotel reception and says well I'm the representative of Wonder Tours Stuart Farquhar Uh, stupid what? Stuart Stuart Farquhar I think he was right the first time. Are you Mr Farquhar's? That kind of stuff but it's of its day I still find it funny and there's even one called Carry On Screaming (laughs) it's supposed to be a comedy horror and it was actually filmed on the original sets of the Hammer House of Horror set where Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing did all their stuff you can see that it's a very classy set that it's been done on and in 1992 they tried to resurrect the series but a lot of the people from the original movies weren't with us anymore so they tried to get a new breed of comedians in to do the roles and it didn't quite work as well and uh, it was a a movie to strangely to celebrate the anniversary of Christopher Columbus uh why I have no idea I think it's because it was 1992 and it was like 1492 yeah uh, anyone who knows anything about Columbus knows he's not a man who should be celebrated exactly It didn't quite work as well, and they haven't included it in this box set. I think probably because they were embarrassed by it. 
uh, I understand that. <laughs> so they left it out. Um, and I thought, well, I'd like to get it just to complete the set. Second hand, it's going for about £12. So I thought, nah, I forget about that. <laughs> But yeah, Christmas was, um, it was quiet, but it was, it was nice. So this show is going to be a space related one because we didn't get a lot of time last time to do space stuff because we had to get the Christmas special out the way. I've had some really positive messages from the people involved with the Big Bang at Bucks and at Live in the Park, which we featured on the Christmas episode. They absolutely loved it. The Bucks Learning Trust, who are the people that actually do the STEM outreach for British education, they've been putting it out there about the podcast and getting people to listen to it. So that's really cool. I'm not going to argue with that. (laughs) So, yeah, we're going to take a short break and... And when we come back, let's get spacey. Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks, thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and Space Launch System rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, the journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the Red Planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. Have you ever wanted to get far? far away from it all, to a planet where no one will ever find you. Well, that place is closer than you think. Welcome to Earth's wild Atlantic way in Ireland. A welcoming pre-hyperdrive society, friendly indigenous wildlife, and more than a few fun activities to train your apprentice. Earth's Wild Atlantic Way, shooting location of Star Wars, The Last Jedi. Escape the dark side along Earth's Wild Atlantic Way. It's the perfect place to get away from it all. This is TGP Nominal. And we are back. So, Mark, you, you and I are both having interesting governmental issues for different reasons. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, don't worry, folks. We're not going to get political here. We understand. But uh, unfortunately, the politics over here are having a very um, detrimental effect on things that are space-related. So, unfortunately, we have a shutdown going on with certain parts of the U.S. government. 
And sadly, NASA is one of those. So there's been a lot of concern about that one. SpaceX obviously is a private organization. They can keep doing stuff as long as people pay them to do it. But obviously they've been doing a lot of work for NASA lately. So that's probably going to have to get put on hold, whatever's being done there. We've got things currently going on, you know, with, with New Horizons and Hubble is still doing its thing. The various rovers. As it stands right now, NASA, for the most part, is unfortunately shut down. Dr. Thaller has been posting on Facebook about how she's waiting to get back to work. So, you know, she's being affected by it. Fortunately, JPL, as it stands right now, is still up and running because JPL, it's not actually NASA. It's actually run by the California Institute of Technology, but they're being funded by NASA. So right now, the, the budget is already taken care of. They've basically got their money. Plus, they also work with other projects, not just NASA. So they get funding from a bunch of different places. As it stands right now, JPL is up and running. So, you know, we're still talking with the rovers and all of that. But Caltech president Thomas Rosenbaum does say that as the partial government shutdown enters a record fourth week, Caltech operations continue apace, but future negative consequences remain a possibility. The most significant impact is on JPL. Prior to the shutdown, laboratory management worked with NASA to maximize the available funding for JPL's tasks. To date, JPL has been able to avoid the furloughs, but may have to adjust staffing levels if the shutdown continues into February. And then at that point, they're going to have to decide if they even want to keep their doors open. Normally the way it works, especially when it comes to contracting companies, they can still keep going and then the government will pay them back later. But obviously, you still need to have money to run on in order to be able to do that. So they don't know what's going to happen. Right now, JPL can continue without any issues. But uh, unfortunately, there are also other problems on the horizon, like they want to do another project for Mars in 2020. Well, that can't exactly shift its location because of a government shutdown. So who knows what's going to happen, but as it stands right now, JPL is still open and doing what they're doing. You, you don't realize what things get actually hit by these things until it actually happens. We have a thing on, on TGP Nominal's website called Launchpad where we list all the different launches that are going to be taking place. And usually at the beginning of the month, there's a good 10, maybe 20 going into the next month. And that went down to zero. And then out of the blue, the Iridium launch went off for SpaceX which was delayed from December anyway so that was overdue and right. then the next one we've got is in uh, as we speak in about nine days time and that's for the uh, ISRO which is basically the Indian Space Agency uh, and then there's nothing until going into February. And who knows what's going to happen now but It's a worrying time it really is Yeah and <laughs> oh, so much I'd love to say but no not, not, not on this kind of podcast It's not that kind of show No because no, <laughs> we could go on for a long time and lose a lot of listeners in the process so we'll, let's just not do that yeah <laughs> best thing to do <laughs> on the tgp extra show we actually mentioned uh, about a couple of things that had happened right at the beginning of the month and one of those was the china space agency landing a craft on the moon which was the changi 4 lunar lander they actually had a lot of experiments and things on board and apparently they've finalized them all they finished all the the experiments that they've they wanted to do and one of those was seeing how plants actually grow on the moon yep. so they sent up some cotton seeds rapeseed potato and uh, another thing called aridopsis 
which I believe is a kind of a mustard seed. It was more than just that, though. It was a whole little uh, ecosystem because they also included fruit flies and yeast. They've actually sent back some pictures of the cotton seed actually growing. It's it's, yeah. it's doing its thing. And uh, it's quite amazing to see. Um, Granted, it's in a controlled environment. It's not like it's moon temperatures. No, because nothing, so nothing would grow <laughs> in <no>. that environment. <laughs> they were all in a, a sealed container. What they want to do is to see if the, the, the yeast could process the flies' waste and the mm-hmm. dead plants to provide food for other food sources. So it's kind of right. like fertilizing other things. And not only that, if they can get rapeseed oil and cotton to work, then you've got source for clothing and for fuel because you can power mm-hmm. things with rapeseed oil. I mean, uh, over here, uh, I'm, I'm not too sure if they're still doing it, but there was a time where they were powering things like buses on rapeseed oil. Oh, wow. So, well, all right, just biodiesel. Mm-hmm. Basically. You can do a lot of things with rapeseed oil, to be honest with you. I mean, you can cook with it. I mean, we do. It's a replacement for olive oil sometimes here, so... But it's not the first time they've obviously done things in space like this because they've been growing stuff on the space station for a little while. I mean, I knew they were doing lettuce in... Uh, since it was about mm-hmm. 2015 but apparently they've been doing cucumbers as well oh, I didn't know that uh, and it says algae has even managed to survive 530 days on a panel outside of the space station when it said that, that they had algae on a panel I, I actually thought it was in the bathroom area on the uh, space Ew. station because <laughs> no not that kind of algae I was thinking about because of when you're doing your teeth and, and things like that but Richard Garriott said it sometimes just hit the wall true uh, I was wondering if it was that algae but then when it said it's outside and unless you're actually going to go outside and and do it (laughs) but yes so they are experimenting with a lot of different things on the space station as well and if they can carry this kind of thing on on the moon as well it's going to be interesting research i think yeah it's We've obviously proven it can be done in space, but on the moon is a totally different thing. According to NASA, China and NASA have been working together, which Hmm. is unusual, to say the least. Yeah, it is, but it's good to see. It is. It's very good to see. Uh, It says that China exchanged data with NASA on their recent mission to land the Chinese spacecraft on the far side of the moon. The Chinese space agency said that it was reportedly the first such collaboration since an American law banned the joint space projects with China that don't have prior congressional approval. And I think that dates back to when they were coming up with the concept of the space station because I think China wanted in. Mm Mm-hmm. But Congress said uh, no. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so it sounds like that wasn't an official collaboration. They simply said, hey, NASA, here's what we found. Mm-hmm. Right, that's a good way of getting around it. I think the way things are looking, scientists to scientists, no matter what nationality you yeah. are, and everyone is there for the same goal. So it's good that people are sharing the data. Mm-hmm. The Chinese Space Agency's deputy director said NASA shared information about the Lunar Orbiter satellite in hopes of monitoring the landing of the Chang'e 4 lunar lander. China, in turn, shared the time and coordinates of the scheduled landing, and he added that while NASA's satellite did not catch the precise moment of landing, it took photographs of the areas afterwards. And I've actually got some pictures of some stuff that was taken from LRO, and in the middle of it is the pictures that the spacecraft actually took itself and they kind of matched them in together so they had a pretty accurate idea of where it actually landed nice which was really cool 
NASA has not published any statements on the collaboration and could not immediately be reached for comment. That's probably because there was nobody there to actually give comment at the moment. Probably. <laughs> and again, if they're barred from collaborating, then they wouldn't have phrased it as such anyway. Yeah. But the, the Chinese president has placed space exploration amongst the country's national development priorities and the far side of the moon mission offered a chance for China to do something not done by any other country. In the past, we were always rushing to catch up to the advanced global standards in space, said the chief designer of China's Lunar Exploration Project. There were many things we had to catch up on, few things in which we could surpass the others, he said. With the probe on the far side of the moon this time, Chinese people have done very well. Officials at the briefing declined to give specific figures on the costs of the space program. China wants to be the first country to establish a base on the moon and says it will build habitats using 3D printing technology. Well, the European Space Agency have been talking about that for quite some time. Officials from the Chinese Space Agency also said that the country will return to the moon by the end of the year with the Chang'e 5 mission. Three successive missions will further explore the barren surface and the viability of building houses there. China National Space Administration, or CNSA, said they also have plans to go to Mars in 2020, a timeline that would likely make them the first to do so, beating out US, Russia and a plethora of private firms looking to colonise space. It sounds like the space race is back. Yep, it does. But it takes something like this for get people to get out there and do something. Hopefully this will be less adversarial than the previous one. I think there will be collaboration and cooperation more this time around. It won't be all secret-ish and hush-hush and like it was before. I hope not. Well, maybe you didn't hear that Hubble was having a little bit of a problem again. Hubble's wide-field camera 3 took itself offline as a safety precaution after onboard software detected anomalous readings when it came to the voltage for it. So, the Hubble team members have now determined that the voltage levels actually were normal, and they said that the glitch was due to a telemetry issue rather than a power supply problem. So... They said that they ran additional calibration and tests, and they will continue to, to run just to make sure that it's operating properly. And uh, once they do, and they say all the tests will work as planned, then it will start to collect images again by the end of this week. Well, this week as we record this. The big thing with Wide Field Camera 3 is that that's the one that captures visible wavelength light. So a lot of the photos that we see and that we drool over when it comes from Hubble comes from that camera so it's obviously a really important part of what they do but of course they've also got the advanced camera for surveys the imaging spectrograph and the cosmic origins spectrograph so all three of those instruments were fine while wide camera field three was down sorry wide field camera was down this article has it wrong ah what can you do (laughs) but it sounds like everything going well that hubble should be back up and running as it should be by the end of this week That's excellent. Now, Tom Brown, Hubble Mission Manager at the Space Telescope Science Institute, presented an engineering analysis at the 233rd meeting of the American Astronomical Society. And this analysis showed that the instruments and major subsystems have a high probability in excess of 80% of remaining operational right the way through to 2025. 
we expect Hubble to be scientifically productive far into the next decade, he said. I read that. That's very good news. So, um, with a bit of luck, that'll keep us going until <sighs> James Webb. Now, that's another thing. What's this government shutdown doing to that? I mean, that's NASA proper, isn't it? Yeah. And it's already been delayed, and Congress has already criticized how long it's been taking and how much money it's been taking. Yeah, I can't even think how many times it's been delayed. I mm-hmm. think originally it was supposed to go up in 2014, and gradually it's been moved back. We currently are standing at 2021, I believe. Um, who knows? With the shutdown, it, it's probably been pushed back to 2022. But even though that hasn't been launched, NASA are already preparing for even bigger and better space observatories to eventually replace it. Four teams of NASA scientists are getting ready to submit their proposals for future flagship class astrophysics missions, which are the most expensive of all the NASA science missions. Of the four, only one mission concept will be selected to launch in the mid-2030s. This is already starting to sound like American Idol or something, you know, <laughs> you know that, that kind of thing. I just hope Simon Cowell doesn't get involved. It's about as bad as it can possibly get. Oh, God, no, 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 no. <laughs> the four mission concept studies were detailed once again at the 233rd meeting of the American Astronomical Society, which took place in Seattle earlier this month, even though many of the NASA scientists were unable to attend the conference due to the government shutdown. Each of the proposed missions is a space telescope designed to study things like stars, galaxies, black holes, planets and objects within the Earth's solar system. The telescopes would probe the mysteries of the universe by detecting different wavelengths of light from low energy infrared to high energy ultraviolet and then x-ray radiations. Now, NASA hasn't put any prices on the missions just yet, but flagship class missions typically cost over $1 billion. However, the James Webb Space Telescope is expected to cost NASA upwards of $10 billion Mm. after years of delays and cost overruns. Although NASA will be responsible for developing and operating the mission, the agency won't actually get to choose from which of the four missions it will pursue as NASA will have to submit its proposals to the National Academy of Sciences, or the NAS, where the committee will decide which of the missions best suits the priorities of astrophysics communities. The NAS determines those priorities by collecting input from the astronomers across the US and publishing a report called the Decadal Survey, which, as the name suggests, is published every 10 years. So what will the Decadal Committee deem the most popular and important fields of research in astrophysics in the 2030s? What kind of scientific tools will astronomers use to study the cosmos? We're talking 15 to 20 years from now, so mm-hmm. it's, it's difficult to work out what we're going to need to be looking into. From the Big Bang to the possibilities on life beyond Earth, there's a lot that the scientists hope to investigate using the space-based instruments. But because NASA operates on a limited budget, not all of the proposed missions will come into fruition. But here's a summary of the four flagship class missions that are on the table for the 2020 Decadal Survey. First up, we have the Large UV Optical Infrared Surveyor, or Lavoie, and now this is an essentially a beefed up version of the Hubble Space Telescope. Like Hubble, this instrument will observe the universe in ultraviolet, infrared, and visible wavelengths of light. However, with a diameter of about 50 feet, 
or 15 metres, Lavoie's mirror would be more than six times wider than the one on Hubble. This means that Lavoie would see the universe six times the resolution of Hubble, and with 40 times the light gathering power of the older telescope, Lavoie would see fainter, smaller, more distant objects. NASA has come up with two different options for Lavoie's design. The larger version, Lavoie A, would be built to launch on NASA's upcoming SLS mega rocket. Lavoie A is the biggest we could fit on the SLS, said Jason Tomlinson, a researcher with the Space Telescope Science Institute, which was a presentation that he gave at the conference. SLS, which is also over budget and behind schedule, should launch on its maiden flight sometime in 2020. Now, if NASA doesn't build that rocket, then we'll go with a smaller version of Lavoie called, well, you guessed it, Lavoie B. <laughs> this model would have a mirror with a diameter of 26 feet or 8 meters, and the smaller size would entail a slightly less resolution than Lavoie A. Lavoie is designed to tackle a variety of astronomical research projects like searching for habitable exoplanets, studying the formation and evolution of stars and galaxies, mapping dark matter throughout the universe, and imaging objects in the solar system like planets, comets, and asteroids. Regardless of what you're interested in, Lavoie has an instrument for you, said Tomlinson. This does sound like a sales pitch from a, a used car salesman. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Next up, we have the Habitable Exoplanet Observatory, or HabEx, <laughs> which is designed to do exactly what its name implies, observe potentially habitable exoplanets around sunlight stars. Whilst looking for biosignatures like water and methane, which may indicate the presence of life on other planets, HabEx will also become the first telescope to directly image Earth-like exoplanets. To be considered a potentially lifelike exoplanet, it must be terrestrial or rocky and must orbit its parent star in a habitable zone where the temperature is just right for liquid water to exist or as we know it's called the Goldilocks zone. <laughs> Habex would deploy a large sunflower shaped star shade to block light from the stars that have planets allowing the telescope to study faint exoplanets in great detail. There's a brilliant uh, animation for this actually which I'll try and find and, and put into the show notes because it, it just looks looks like a, a giant hockey puck and then it kind of spirals out like a sunflower head and um, just blocks out the light. It's pretty cool. The Habex telescope itself would have a diameter of 13 to 26 feet or 4 to 8 meters. NASA is still studying different design options with different sizes but the star shade will be far larger with a diameter of 236 feet. So it's pretty big this sunshade thing. In addition to collecting visible light images, Habex will also conduct ultraviolet and infrared observation of the cosmos, making this observatory useful for more than just exoplanet research. Using the same instruments that would employ for studying exoplanets, Habex could observe and map stars and galaxies, and then study the expansion of the universe and investigate dark matter. The third option is a potential successor to NASA's Chandra X-ray Observatory, and it's called LYNX. It's not an acronym, it's just called LYNX, which is unusual for NASA. <laughs> it is. 
a proposed space telescope that would uncover the invisible universe by detecting high-energy X-ray radiation that is not visible to the human eye. This means that researchers could use the instruments to look for things like supernovas and black holes. Lynx was designed to peer through space and time to look through the earliest black holes in the universe, allowing researchers to build a better understanding of how these objects would form and grow. The telescope could also observe for the formation and the evolution of galaxies and galaxy clusters. It would also be able to investigate the birth and death of stars, capturing exquisite maps of exploding stars, like Chandra did with its image of the Tycho supernova. Mm -hmm. But with a hundred times the resolution of Chandra, Lynx would be able to produce even more spectacular images. And while Chandra can study the stars located up to 1300 light years away, the instruments on Lynx would be able to see up to 16,000 light years away or 12.5 times the distance that's that's pretty impressive wow with a primary mirror diameter of about 10 feet or three meters links would only be slightly wider than hubble however the opening of the the tube-shaped telescope would be five times larger than chandra's which measures only four feet or 1.2 meters in diameter now this leads us last but not least to the Origins Space Telescope, which seeks to answer the big mysteries of life in the universe, like how habitable planets are formed. The Origins Telescope would help scientists break down the steps in that process by tracking the ingredients for life from the earliest stages of stars and planet formation. This far infrared surveyor mission would be able to peer through obscuring dust clouds to get a clear view of the stars and exoplanets in star-forming regions. It could be considered a next-generation version of the Herschel Space Observatory, a European mission that observed the universe in infrared about four years before shutting down in 2013. With a diameter of about 50 feet or 15 meters, the Origins Space Telescope would be about the same size as Lavoie and four times the size of Herschel. Like Herschel, the proposed telescope would require a special cryo-cooler system to keep its instruments from getting too hot. By keeping cool, the telescope would be able to increase its sensitivity and the mission scientists said it could be up to a thousand times more sensitive than any other infrared telescope launched to Oof. date. NASA and the rest of the astrophysics community will have to wait about 23 months to find out which of these four missions will get selected. And then it's going to take probably another 15 years to develop it before yeah. it will launch. Yeah. Until then, we'll have to wait for the James Webb Space Telescope and the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope. Well, I can't imagine James Webb will be that long. <laughs> I hope not. So what do you think for, from the descriptions? What do you think? I mean, there's a lot of concepts there that are similar. I, I think they're trying yeah. to put a lot of the same things in each of them so that if one of them doesn't get accepted, then they can still do some of that research with some of the others. I'm kind of liking Lynx. It does sound pretty impressive, doesn't it? That sounds really good, especially with the resolution that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they have different cameras to, to look at different spectrums. But maybe, you know, hey, well, that project might get shut down, so we'll just work on what that was going to observe and integrate it into Lynx or whatever wins. Maybe that's a reason why they, they all sound so similar. Yeah. They've all got their primary objective, but they also can cover some of the other aspects of the other missions. 
I'm, I don't know. I'm just really, I like the links. And I've also noticed that some of them are covering aspects that other space telescopes and probes that have now become defunct mm-hmm. used to cover. Yeah. So it's, it's keeping the options open, really, which I, I kind of like that. Yeah, I don't don't like the 10 to 15 year rollout, but what are you going to do? Um, but but on the other hand, New Horizon went through the exact same process and look what we got. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And it's still going. And it's still going. That That is amazing. Yeah. Just before I came on the air, I was watching a uh, Sky at Night special about it because obviously Sky at Night were there on the night. Mm-hmm. You know, they got exclusive interviews with Helen Stern and Brian May. And, and I was like, oh, man, this is really cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just going. And, and they were saying that New Horizons has enough fuel to just to keep going for as, as long as they know at this point. Yeah, as long as they don't overdo it with the fuel, um, they should be right. fine. But as we know, it only takes a little bit of fuel to keep it going. And a lot of that is just for, you know, corrective m- maneuvers. If they managed to point the higher resolution camera there, because I know they said that they were iffy about that one. Mm-hmm. They don't know if they got the angle right to get do, do a high resolution strip across Ultima Thule, but I hope that they got that one right. I would love to see the surface of that in more detail. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just unreal that they were they didn't know quite what they were going to be pointing the camera at anyway. They weren't 100% mm-hmm. sure whether they were going to get anything at all. And to get it straight on, it was like, yeah. wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they definitely know what they're doing on that one. It's such a silly-looking thing. Mm, it is bizarre-looking. It almost has a, like a steampunk kind of look about it because it looks like it's got like chimneys and, and things on it. But as we know, <laughs> they're like different kind of probes and things that it's got on there. But yeah, it is amazing little craft. That's kind of interesting that you were talking about you know getting new telescopes that can peer through cosmic dust and things like that because it's that cosmic dust that causes a lot of, I don't want to say problems, but obscures views of a lot of things that scientists would like to look at. But astronomers have actually been able to witness the birth of either a black hole or a neutron star. Yeah. So this is a galaxy that's about... Uh, 200 million light years away, which is funny because in the article they say that's actually relatively close, which is mind-blowing to think that 200 million light years is relatively close. (laughs) But uh, the Atlas surveys, twin telescopes down in Hawaii, were able to picture an exploding star in this one galaxy back in June of 2018. And what they've been finding out since then is that they've been able to witness, they don't know which one yet, it's either the birth of a black hole or a neutron star, and the reason why is because, for some reason, this galaxy does not have as much stellar debris in it as they normally would have. So normally this would be obscured by that debris, and a lot of the ones that they have were results of explosions that happened hundreds of years ago, but this was one that they actually got to witness as it happened. They saw it happen, and then it got incredibly bright, about 10 to 100 times brighter than a typical supernova. And then it peaked in just a few days, and then it used up most of its power about two weeks afterward. But they were able to monitor the entire process for about 27 days after its discovery. Because of that, I hate the way they phrase this, it has about 10 times less stellar debris, but because there was so much less debris, <laughs> so much less debris, mm. that's what 
gave them the ability to witness this. So the object is officially named AT2018COW. There we go. So they just refer to it as the cow. <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah, they said normally a large amount of stellar debris will block them from being able to see this. But apparently there was significantly less debris at, for this one. And they were actually able to see the birth. Now, again, they don't know what it is yet. They don't know if it's a black hole. They don't know if it's a neutron star. But the fact is they were able to see it from the time that it happened, which has they've never been able to do that before. Wow. And could you imagine one of those telescopes that could peer through the dust plus this kind of situation where there's not as much dust to go through anyway? Oh, yeah. That would be fantastic. I mean, that opens the door to a whole bunch of research that they've never been able to do before. This is really exciting stuff. It really is. Uh, government issues aside, this is a fantastic time to be alive. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Technology is just improving in heaps and bounds. You know, with the stuff that we're going to be sending out now, which we think is amazing, obviously it's going to take time to get to places. And then once it gets there, we'll be sending more stuff out and the technology will be even better than that. And it's like, oh. Yeah. You and I'll be just uh, you know grains in the dirt at that point, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's good to know that it's it, cool. The, the the baton, as it were, has been handed to the next thing. talking about space probes and things within just a few months of the beginning of its primary science mission nasa's planet hunting transmitting exoplanet survey satellite or tess has already identified over 50 exoplanet candidates now tess has discovered and confirmed one of the densest sub neptune planets found so far and it's called HD21749b. Furthermore, it seems to have a planetary sibling that is surprisingly similar to Earth, but not really. Um, you'll see what I mean by that in a minute. <laughs> Located about 52 light years from Earth, in a direction of the Southern Hemisphere constellation called Reticulum, HD21749b is a very strange world that orbits a bright orange dwarf star once every 36 days. Now, before I carry on, I need to explain something. Regular listeners to TGP Normal and Extra should be familiar with the term AU, or mm -hmm. Astronomical Unit, which is a system devised to make it easier to explain long distances in space. Now, for example, one AU is 93 million miles or 150 million kilometers, which is the distance between the Earth and the Sun. So two AU will be two times the distance from the Earth to the Sun, and then so on and so on. Like many exoplanets discovered so far, HD21749b sits very close to its star. Specifically, it orbits at a distance of just 0.2 AU, or a fifth of the distance 
distance between the Earth and the Sun. So the new found planet sits twice as close to its host star as Mercury is to the Sun. So it's, it's pretty close in the whole scope of things. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if 200 million light years is relatively close. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> HD21749b is only three times the size of Earth. It's a whopping 23 times as massive. This means that it has an overall density of 5.7 grams per cubic centimeter. For reference, that's significantly denser than diamond or titanium and about half the density of lead. However, with an average density of 5.5 grams per cubic centimeter, the Earth is also pretty dense, or at least some of the inhabitants are. <laughs> Importantly, according to, the, to a research paper, the density of HD21749b indicates that it's lightly surrounded by substantial atmosphere. Unfortunately, the author also pointed out that HD21749b is not likely to be the ideal target for future atmospheric follow-ups with the upcoming James Webb Space Telescope, etc. Finally, HD21749b has temperatures that are hovering around 300 degrees Fahrenheit or 150 degrees Celsius, which yeah, is just a yeah. bit too hot for liquid water to exist on the surface. Yeah. In addition to finding HD21749b, TESS also recently discovered an Earth-sized world orbiting the same system's host star. However, since the planet has yet to be confirmed, it still holds the moniker TOI186.02, which stands for TESS Object of Interest 186.02. At roughly 80% the mass and 90% the size of Earth, if confirmed, TOI186.02 would be the first Earth-sized planet discovered by TESS. However, just because the planet is about the same size and mass of Earth, it doesn't mean it's the same as Earth, because TOI 186.02 has a very short orbital period of just 7.8 days, Ooh. and there is very little known about its composition or potential atmosphere. Furthermore, it experiences temperatures of around 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. <laughs> which is... 430 degrees Celsius, making it more similar to Venus than it would be to Earth. Yeah. <laughs> Rule that one out. <laughs> so no matter whether TOI 186.02 is a truly fitting like Earth exoplanet or not, these new discoveries show that multi-planet systems like HD 21749 is ripe for future study and exploration, so be sure to watch this space. We love Hubble here. Very much. It's an amazing piece of technology. It's delivered some of the most amazing photos I have ever seen. Considering its start, you know, because it had a really dodgy start, but yeah, what it's producing, wow. Oh, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Well, they decided to do it again. NASA has released, I'm sorry, I think this was ESA actually. Yeah, this is this was over on ESA's site. They have released a new image from Hubble. It's a mosaic, of course. And it's of the neighboring Triangulum Galaxy. So this thing is 3 million light years from Earth, only 3 million light years from Earth. The Triangulum Galaxy is also known as Messier 33. It's actually considered to be a local group of galaxies that includes us and Andromeda. This is a tinier galaxy. It's only 60,000 light years compared to Milky Way, which is 100,000 light years. And sometimes you can even see it with the naked eye. If you've got a really clear night, 
Um, but it does have a whole bunch of dust and gas and so forth. And they actually estimate that it creates a new solar mass every two years. But the reason why we're talking about this is because Hubble decided to take 54 separate images of the, the center part of it to a new mosaic that makes up 34,372 by 19,345 pixels for a total of 665 million pixels. That's just... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I was just thinking, I was just trying to take that in. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even with 4K, you'd have to have... Okay, this is just a very rough, quick calculation. You would need to have... 20 high-def TVs to view that, mm -hmm. or I guess that would make it about five 4K TVs, or at least the resolution worth of those, to be able to view this. But the thing is, it's still not the biggest one. Andromeda's image from 2005 is still the biggest of 1.5 billion pixels. Wow. Yeah. But still, even at that, to view any image of 665 million pixels is mind-blowing yeah but the, a, a zoomable version of it is available over on isa's hubble website so i have to put a link to that in the show notes oh yeah that's one of those things where enhance 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 could actually work because <laughs> you just keep zooming in you know when you start zooming in and you get like halfway through a zoom and you're still not even close <laughs> i know that's a big image <laughs> Have you seen um, some of the latest findings from the research from the Cassini space probe? I've seen that there have been a few videos released, some really high-quality videos. Well, um, there's been a, a new analysis of, from the data from Cassini. We've, we've kind of brushed on this before, that there probably could be life on uh, Enceladus. Mm -hmm. And this new data indicates that there is a presence of large organic molecules on Enceladus. Ooh. Using two instruments on board the now perished orbiter, an international team of researchers looked at the molecules, which, like you mentioned before, was erupting from the plumes of water vapor streaming from beneath Enceladus's surface. Though the similar experiments have, have been performed in the past, this time the researchers found organic molecules much bigger, thus more complex than any other found before. The international team used data from both a mass spectrometer aboard Cassini, which in brackets tastes the plume's composition, as well as the Cosmic Dust Analyzer, or the CDA, which uses the impacts of molecules against a sensor to determine their mass. About 3% of the molecules they sampled approached the limits of the sensor's detection range at 200 atomic mass units, or more than 10 times heavier than methane. Though the researchers have found the organic molecules elsewhere in the solar system, the sheer size of those on Enceladus is surprising. Combined with the moon's other intriguing characteristics, a salty liquid water ocean and geysers emanating from beneath the surface and indications of hydrothermal vents, Enceladus continues to look like the most tantalizing place in our solar system to look for extraterrestrial life. This is a pretty big find. I mean, granted, you're not going to find anything complex, but just the chance of finding 
anything would be amazing. Yeah. We have arsenic-based life here. Yeah. I mean, who's to say that life forms are not silicon-based on other mm -hmm. planets? I mean, seeing as how Enceladus is mostly water anyway, mm -hmm. it is, that's the best chance of having life like what we know it. It's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Oh, come on. Tell me you got that ref. Star Trekking. Thank you. You scared me. It's worse than that. He's dead, Jim. <laughs> we come in peace. Shoot to kill. Shoot to kill. Shoot to kill. My favorite bit is when Scotty says, I'll see you, Jimmy. <laughs> right at the end. <laughs> Gotta have fun. I can't believe that got to number one in the UK charts. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> uh, living in a box? I like living in a box. <laughs> If that can be the hit that it was, there should be no surprise that Star Trek could be. I'm not 100% sure if I just like the song because I know it drives you bonkers, but... Um, There's probably that part of that. <laughs> there, there is also a song, it came out in 1988 by a group that keeps changing its name. I mean, they were called The Jams, they were called The KLF, and lots of other names, but they did call themselves The Time Lords for a little while, and there was a track they brought out called Doctor in the TARDIS. which got to number one. <laughs> yeah. You'll have to go check it out, but it is it is the most bizarre record. Well, I mean, KLF, wasn't that Bill Drummond? Bill Drummond, yeah. Yeah, I've heard about him. <laughs> he's an interesting character. Yeah, he's... he's uh, I know he's Scottish. He actually lived about three miles from where I was born, and he became a kind of a, a local hero. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, he's, he's a strange guy. Didn't he burn a load yes. of money? Something, didn't he like burn a million quid? Something like Something that. Something like that? <laughs> Dropped a, a dead sheep at the Brit Awards, I think. Yeah, like, he did stuff. Wow, okay. There's some weird things happen at the Brit Awards. <laughs> and then you question why Star Trek would be number one. Mm -hmm. There was a guy <laughs> called Jarvis Cocker. I don't know if you know Jarvis Cocker. Uh, the name sounds familiar. He was in a band called Pulp. And uh, Michael Jackson was doing one of his massive stage presentation things at the Brits, and Jarvis Cocker decided to go on stage and drop his trousers. Oh, jeez. <laughs> because he didn't like Michael Jackson's music. Okay. But, yeah, you, you do get some weird things happen at the Brits. It's, it's almost, well, you do get some weird things happen. Well, you used to. I don't, oh, sure. I don't know what it's like now with the MTV Music Awards. I don't even know if it still happens. But I, I think it does, but I lost interest in MTV back in, like, the early 90s. Uh -huh. Yeah, MTV changed here as well. We used to have a thing called MTV Europe, and that was really cool because you had VJs from all over Europe all involved, and... It was like a big European community. And then they split up the different MTVs. And, mm -hmm. and we became MTV UK and Ireland. And that's when they started to bring out what I now call MTV as mediocre television. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> we, we suffered with that before you did, my friend. Yeah. But anyway, how do we get on this topic? <laughs> oh, Star Trek and right. <laughs> did I ever go on MTV? Yeah, that was on MTV. <laughs> oh, that, that wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> I'm sure I saw it on MTV over here. Well, if you follow space, then you know the name Katherine Johnson. She's obviously the pioneering NASA mathematician and computer scientist who was, you know, worked on the Apollo 11 mission to the moon. Obviously, she was one of the main characters in the movie Hidden Figures, which I love. Great movie. You've seen that, right? 
Yeah, uh, it came out in the cinema here about a month, month after it was in the States. So she was hired by, well, the predecessor to NASA, which was the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics. Uh, back in 1953, she worked as a human computer, as they called them back then, which was a, that's a mathematician who could perform very complicated calculations manually. And she is now going to be coming out with a book, an autobiography basically, directed specifically towards girls called Reaching for the Moon. So she said that, uh, when she was talking about this, she said that she never worried about what people thought of me or what they believed my limitations were because of my color or my gender. I want young people to feel the same way when reading my story. I want them to see that it doesn't matter where you came from, what you look like, or what your gender is. You're no better or worse than anyone out there, and there's nothing you can't do as long as you put your mind to it. You can be a doctor or a lawyer or even help put a person on the moon. It's a book for middle grade readers. We'll put it that way. Um, not, not specifically girls. But uh, Reaching for the Moon will be published in the fall of 2019. When you say uh, middle grade kids, what, what kind of age group are we talking about there? Um, my guess would be like 9 to 13. Right, okay. Even I didn't know what they really meant by that. But I would say that it probably means middle school, which over here is like between the ages of... of nine and 13 or around that area okay it's, it's strange you're saying about that actually because uh i was watching a uh, television drama over here and one of the characters in it was a um a girl who was just well she'd just taken her a levels which are the qualifications you need to get yourself into college and um, she'd just been accepted into quite a good college especially for for girls and uh the camera pans into her bedroom and she's got this movie poster for hidden figures on her wall nice so that's really cool and anybody within the sound of our voice who hasn't seen that movie yet you've got to see it oh yeah for sure so good i i am a big star wars star trek sci-fi i love the marvel movies okay i love some of the dc movies <laughs> but I watched that movie, and as the credits were rolling, I was like, I want to stay here and watch it again. It's a historical drama, but it was so good. Gotta see it. And this is the thing I'm loving about the new Doctor Who. Some of the storylines are going back in history and dealing with these issues of discrimination and things. Uh, they went back to America in the 1960s when, you know, uh, 50s and 60s when black people couldn't sit on the same part of the bus mm -hmm. and, yep. and and it dealt with the issues there they are dealing with historic issues uh, and some people have been saying oh you shouldn't bring history into Doctor Who it's sci-fi but when you read the, what Doctor Who was originally designed for going back through time the idea was so that it could also entertain kids but educate them at the same time this is back in 1960 what are we talking now 1963 wasn't it when Doctor Who first came what? out they dealt with history in Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the Ferengis were the ones at Roswell. <laughs> Come on. It's good to get kids educated without them realizing they're being educated because mm. they'll take it in. They'll take it in better than stick a book in front of them. <laughs> yeah. I hate talking about this kind of stuff, but... It's not a planet. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what you're going to talk about, but, you know. And it will be one day. <laughs> 
I mean, I heard somebody's argument saying if we let Pluto be a planet, then the, the other little ones that are there will have to become planets as well, and it'll be your fault that all the kids will have to name all these 300 planets that are... <laughs> Technically, they are all planets. It's just that we've decided that, well, if that planet orbits another planet, we're going to call it a moon. But, I mean, technically, aren't they all planets by definition anyway? Well, planetoids, yeah. Um, well, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, but Pluto has got so much going for it. It's not as though it's just a lump of rock like some of them are. Yeah, I know, I know. But <laughs> it's out there, we've seen it, it's awesome, and we're just going to keep figuring out more about it. Yeah, definitely. Now... SpaceX, and we will be talking a bit more about SpaceX, is going to be reducing its workforce by 10% of the company's more than 6,000 employees. Uh, the company said it will part ways with some of its manpower, citing extraordinarily difficult challenges ahead. To continue delivering for our customers and succeed in developing interplanetary spacecraft and global space-based internet, SpaceX must become a leaner company. Either of these developments, even when attempted separately, have bankrupted some other organizations, a spokesman said in an email. In June, Elon Musk fired at least seven people in the senior management team leading a SpaceX satellite launch project. This was reported in November. The firings related to disagreements over the pace at which the team was developing and testing its Starlink satellites. SpaceX's Starlink program is competing with OneWeb and Canada's Telesat to be the first to market with new satellite-based internet services. The management shakeup involved Musk bringing in new managers from SpaceX's headquarters in California to replace a number of managers he fired in Seattle. Another Elon Musk company, the electric car maker Tesla Incorporated, said in June it was cutting its workforce by 9%, removing several thousand jobs across the company in a cost reduction manoeuvre. Since then, Tesla has opened a $5 billion factory in Shanghai. So it sounds like there's a lot of companies in America doing exactly the same as they're doing over here. Now, on a positive note regarding SpaceX, Elon Musk has unveiled the first pictures of a retro-looking steely rocket called Starship, formerly known as the BFR, and it almost looks like the one from the Tintin comic books that one day will carry people to the moon and Mars. Musk posted pictures on Twitter of the Starship Hopper prototype, which awaits its first flight test in Texas within the next coming weeks. But there is an artist's impression with a little guy for reference on it. And he's actually taken the same photograph with a guy in exactly the same position to compare the two. And it's pretty amazing to see. It is like one of these old 1950s comic book things that you know a lot of people grew up looking at that going, this is going to be the future. The prototype built in Boca Chica along the Gulf Coast of Texas is nine yards in diameter nine yards who works in yards it's feet uh, feet uh, and meters <laughs> <clears throat> you still work in yards no not really it's it's usually feet but a yard is three feet okay <laughs> is it three foot three three foot three inches a, a, a yard no a yard is three feet exactly exactly i used to think it was three foot three i don't know why nope. 
The Orbital prototype is expected to launch in June, and that version will be paired with a massive rocket booster known as the Falcon Super Heavy. Now, we've only done one launch of the Falcon Heavy, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and now they're talking about Falcon Super Heavy. What what kind of Tesla is he going to launch with that one? (sighs) (laughs) Well, wasn't Elon Musk um, coming up with electric trucks? Kind of yeah, oh uh, yeah, that's possible. <laughs> that's Stick possible. one of those in it, yeah, a big juggernaut thing, or or one of the tubes that he's using for his boring company, you know, to, to drill underground. Use one of the big transport tubes. Once they're finished with, they've got no use, have they? Yeah. So why not launch it in space? <laughs> I'm still, my brain is still wrapping around the fact that a news article mentioned yards. Yeah, I can't get over it either. I just looked at that and went. Huh? <laughs> Yards? All I can say is the person who wrote this article is of a certain age, possibly. Maybe. I'm also seeing a lot of different sites calling it that, so I'm guessing that it ended up being like a press release and everybody's running with it. Hmm. Huh. That's weird. I, no. I haven't seen the word yards for a long time. <laughs> oh, I know. The only time we use it over here is when we got a yardstick, which is a three-foot measuring stick. Yeah. That's it. But otherwise, yeah, that that kind of blows my mind a little bit. But myself saying that three foot three, three foot three is is a meter. Ah, that's probably where I'm getting confused because I'm sure my dad had a, a yardstick which was three foot three. But is there a difference between an English yard and an American yard? I don't know. I mean, over <laughs> here uh, again, a yard is simply thirty six inches. Mm-hmm. Done. End of story. I don't know what your difference is time for Google (laughs) yeah is there a difference between an English yard and an American yard (laughs) well what you call a yard we call a garden the other way round (laughs) oh is it yeah yeah okay what we call a garden you call a yard I was on the right track (laughs) I don't see I might be wrong here (laughs) because my dad used to have this yardstick that used to fold up concertina Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, I haven't seen one of those in a long time. Yeah, this was really nice. It was uh, rosewood with um, brass hinges on it. It was nice. I think it's I pretty old, too. I don't see anything. Okay. Oh, wait, no, there it is. Uh, British Imperial Yard. Well, if it's Imperial, then it's got to be the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I might be. You might be right in thinking that it's three foot three to a meter. That might be... That might be the uh, where I'm getting confused. Yeah, because it's it's technically three point two eight feet for one meter, mm-hmm. so three point three. And this is where I like working out things in feet by the, uh, the height of a door. Uh, the average yeah. UK door is six foot six inches, and that's how I work out the the lengths mm. of different things. <laughs> See, this is this is why I wish we'd just swallow our damn pride and go metric or both. Do both. Fine, do both. I don't care about that. Yeah. But whatever. I mean, it's just us in Japan now. When I grew up, when, when we used to measure smaller things like in scientific experiments and things, it was all in metric. But when we were dealing with height, it was all in feet and inches. Well, I know when I was younger, like early 1980s, uh-huh. most places dabbled in both. Like weather outlets would mention temperature in Fahrenheit and Celsius. And if you see... a, a electronic clock, they'd switch temperature between Fahrenheit and Celsius. Mm-hmm. And then all just kind of went away like, eh, ew, metric, we don't like that. Eh, pff, pff, no, go away. Go back to Imperial. 
You don't really see it very much anymore. I once joked that a few years ago, I think, I saw a local bank that did the Fahrenheit and Celsius. And I was like, whoa, are they committing some kind of capital crime by doing that? Are they going to be in business much longer? And sure enough, they're out of business now. Wow. So that must have killed them. I mean, here, I mean, kids are now taught to measure height in metric. But if you drive, everything's in miles, <laughs> not in kilometers. You go into a pub, it's not done in uh, milliliters or whatever, it's pints. That That's different, though. I mean, come on, that that's a... British societal thing. Oh, yeah. We, You're never going to get rid of we it. We were it never going to give up a pint. An actual pint size, but you will always have pints. Oh, yeah. That's not going to change. Yeah. If you go to uh, a green grocer's or something like that, all your fruit and vegetables, they're weighed in, in pounds. <laughs> it's weird here. <laughs> <laughs> Each of our countries have their our little quirks. Yeah, that's for sure. Also, Elon Musk tweeted on the 4th of January about uh, that they are about a month away from the first orbital test flight of the new Crew Dragon without a crew of course mm -hmm. but, yeah, but did you so. see the photos of the new astronaut walkway yeah that is um, very futuristic <laughs> yeah it, it's it's looking pretty mm -hmm. but everything is looking pretty stylish from the SpaceX side of things. Also, did you see that video that uh, SpaceX put out about the fairing recovery test that they, they carried out? I didn't see the video itself. Oh, um, I, heard it, I heard it did man. miss, though. It missed, but by a gnat's wing. Huh. Oh, it's such a cool video. Um, I'll have to put it in the show notes, and I'll have to send you a, a, a link to it, but it was amazing to see I mean they dropped it from a helicopter uh, the parachute came out from the fairing and it literally fell in the water just beside Mr. Stevens it was I would say less than two or three meters away from oh, the man. side of the ship yeah I see a photo of it boy that was close <laughs> but it is amazing to watch. So, yeah, definitely got to put that in the show notes. Hey, at least they keep trying. Oh, yeah. I mean, if they keep doing these drop tests with it, oh, there's the, yeah. they can only perfect it, can't they? They Then they know what speed to, to put the, the ship at and everything. Yeah. Uh, it's it's going to get there. I mean, how many attempts did it take to, to land on a ship? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, look at that. It's like, we got it, 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 we don't got it. <laughs> so close. Yeah. Unfortunately, those ships can only turn so quickly. Mm -hmm. But uh, That's neat. That is showing how, how close we are to, to having that capability. Yeah, if they could do something to, to tighten up the turning on that ship, they would have caught that if they could if they were able to do that. Maybe they need to do some kind of... Um, Hybrid with a London taxi because they've got the turning circle on a <laughs> on a penny piece. They can <laughs> <laughs> nice. 
Habits. Bumhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spamhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spamheadproductions.weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. So, John. Yes, sir. The end of another packed show. It is, but it's the beginning of a new year. Mm-hmm. And considering, as I said to you, I, I didn't think there was going to be a lot happening apart from the Chinese lunar landing and then obviously the New Horizons. Yeah. I didn't think there was going to be a lot more going on, but then when I checked into it, oh, there's loads going on. <laughs> there's always stuff going on. It might not be happening here. Thank you, shut down, but it's always stuff going on. Mm-hmm. So once again, thanks for coming on board. Hey, thanks for putting up with me. And thanks to everyone out there for listening to the show. We will speak to you all again real soon. Let's see, how should I do the toodles this time? Hmm, I don't know. My brain is just not working right now. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com, where your input is our output. Or click the social media icons at the top left of the page over at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. And you can listen to me going solo, bringing you the latest in movies and home theater for regular people in the Widescreen podcast over at widescreen.org. Don't forget to rate and review us. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. I have no idea how to do toodles this time around, so let's just leave it at the debate on how to do toodles. (laughs) Okay.